Welcome to Hepatocellular Carcinoma Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Richard Finn from the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, and to begin, I asked for his take on an important global HCC issue in general medical oncology. How would you respond to comments that I personally have heard from a number of oncologists expressing a sense of frustration that, quote, the interventional radiologists work on these patients so much before we ever see them that by the time they get to us, they have very compromised liver functions, very difficult to use systemic therapy. Do you think that's a legitimate concern? I think so. And I think it's becoming more important of a discussion as we have more options for patients. I think the field took somewhat of a hit having just serafinib for the past 10 years. Not that serafinib is not active. High-level evidence and repeated studies that improve survival. But we're not talking about two-year survival. The data has shown that we're on median about three months improvement in selected patients. And now as we have more drugs available, there's no way we're going to get someone to second line or even third line if we don't get them to front line. And when we had nothing else to offer patients, then chemoembolization expanded to fill that void. Similarly, radioembolization expanded to fill that void. It was something to do. Liver cancer does tend to stay in the liver until later in the disease course, even though we know that vascular invasion, you know, when you do a scan and you see macrovascular invasion, that means invasion that can be seen on MRI or CT into the blood vessels. We know that is a poor prognostic sign, and those patients tend to be of a more advanced clinical phenotype and don't respond as well to local regional therapy. And when we had nothing else to offer them as far as systemic treatment, taste became more and more dominant. And the serafinib experience did pull some of those patients away from the interventionalists. I think the challenge in the community and what you echoed is that oncologists are not involved necessarily earlier, or if they are, they send the patients to the interventionalists and don't see them back. They're not actively managing them from scan to scan. For example, patient might come in with what looks like intermediate disease, you know, maybe multifocal tumors in the liver. They say, oh, you need to see the interventionalist. And I think for many of us who are at a multidisciplinary large liver cancer center, we'll say, we'll see you back in six weeks. Whereas in the community, they might say, go see the radiologist, and then they don't see them you know, for six months or eight months or longer when they come back and they're decompensated. I see intrahepatic therapy as a way to control growth within the liver for a certain period of time. And it's important to keep in mind, and what I've come to appreciate, is that the disease burden on a patient is not just what we see on a scan. There are certain things that occur in patients when they have a malignancy that aren't just quantitated on a scan. For example, weight loss, fatigue, you know, some element of liver dysfunction, even though the tumor on imaging doesn't change that much. You know, so we see patients who say, well, has it spread outside the liver? Well, you know, when the liver is a critical organ, it doesn't need to spread outside the liver. When they walk in the door, they have a serious problem because they have a space-occupying lesion in an organ that's critical and in an organ that's already compromised. So when you start debulking, for lack of a better term, or start treating the liver with local regional therapy, there's always going to be some collateral damage to the rest of the liver as far as its function, as far as the patient's performance status. And I think to your earlier question about the frustration in medical oncology is that you know, we know we have drugs that can change the natural history of the disease, but that's only when patients are not so sick from their liver disease. There's two competing risks for death, cancer and liver disease. Can you talk about patients with HCC who are likely to visit a medical oncologist, people who are non-curable with unresectable disease? Unresectable liver cancer is a very heterogeneous group of patients. You can be unresectable for various reasons. You can be unresectable because the tumor is very big, or you can be unresectable if 
your liver is very sick from cirrhosis. And that was a very significant contribution made by the Barcelona group in the development of their staging system. In every other tumor type, we use TNM, tumor nodes metastases. And that criteria is very good at capturing the risk of death from the tumor. But in our patients with liver cancer, the other risk of death is their underlying liver disease. And that needs to be captured in a staging system. Someone might have a two centimeter tumor, but if their bilirubin is 10 from liver failure, clearly they're not gonna die from that two centimeter tumor. Conversely, you might have someone whose liver function is perfect, albumin is four and a half, bilirubin's one, and their platelet count is 300,000, no portal hypertension, a very fit person, and they have a six centimeter tumor with vascular invasion, their survival is gonna be limited by that tumor, not from underlying liver disease. So right away, the Barcelona system aims at stratifying these patients. I usually start with the extremes, the stage D patients. These are patients who, regardless of their tumor burden, are just very sick and decompensated from liver disease, and really there's nothing we can do to impact their survival, except perhaps if they have small tumor burden, they might go to transplant. And then stage zero and A, these are patients who are well compensated, and if they do not have significant portal hypertension, might go to surgery for resection of their tumor. Or if they do have some portal hypertension, and you know, it's always interesting because one of the main referrals to oncologists in the community is for thrombocytopenia, which is often undiagnosed liver disease. And so we often use a platelet count of 100,000. If you're under 100,000, typically that represents portal hypertension that can't be resected. And so these patients might undergo radiofrequency ablation, you know, alcohol ablation, microwave ablation, you know, local treatments, or even chemoembolization, you know, depending on the location. But these are patients who will go under local treatments. Some of them can be cured with RFA for small tumors, but most of these patients will recur and often they would be triaged to transplant. They're within transplant criteria. The big groups are the Barcelona B and C. The B are probably by and large the majority of patients we see when they walk in the door. These are patients who have multifocal tumors in the liver, typically do not have vascular invasion. They might have some decompensation. They'd be considered child PUA or B. And by and large, they're asymptomatic from their cancer. And local regional therapy with TACE is really the backbone of treatment for them. But they're not cured with local regional therapy, and they will stage migrate eventually to C. Or some patients will walk in the door with stage C, which is advanced disease. And this is the focus of systemic treatment. And these are patients who have symptomatic disease, who have extrahepatic spread, or importantly, have tumors that are growing into the vasculature of the liver. And this is the group of patients who usually make up 80% of patients in systemic trials, frontline trials. But at the same time, there are patients who are Barcelona B who get TACE and progress on TACE, but do not clearly become stage C. They just become TACE refractory. Okay, well, why don't we go through some of your cases? And I thought we could start out with your patient, a 68-year-old man who I think he ended up having a transplant. So this is a 68-year-old gentleman who has chronic liver disease from hepatitis C, obviously a common scenario who was found to have liver cancer. You know, I think at presentation, he had maybe three lesions all on the right lobe, the largest being, I think, four centimeters, and then had two smaller lesions, keeping in mind that we can make the diagnosis of liver cancer without a biopsy, you know, just on imaging. Hypervascular lesion that has delayed washout can be called liver cancer. Often the radiologists use this term LIRADS, just like we have in mammogram, BIRADS, there's LIRADS, and a LIRADS-5 lesion is definitely liver cancer. Did you see this patient when you presented? So at like our center, he was referred in because uh, he was seen in the community initially, and oncology plays a pivotal role in the management of almost all the patients, regardless of stage. So he might come in and see the hepatologist on day one, see me on day one, and the surgeon on day one. He's clearly not resectable because this patient had thrombocytopenia, a platelet count in the 80s. 
He was fairly well preserved as far as his liver function. You know, normal bilirubin, relatively normal albumin. And this patient would be referred for local regional therapy with the plan that eventually he would be listed for transplant. And so when I see patients, I explain short-term goals and long-term goals. The short-term is to control their tumor, and we know by doing that we can extend their survival. But long-term, which takes several months or a year or longer to get them a liver, we want to cure them because they have bad soil. I explain it to them, they have bad soil and they've developed weeds and we can try to control the weeds, but eventually the soil needs to be replaced. And so, not unusual, these patients undergo embolization procedures. They'll be followed typically every two to three months afterwards, and there's a mechanism to get them priority on the transplant list. But eventually, needless to say, this patient went to transplant with curative intent. You know, very important for predicting on how a patient does after transplant will be what their tumor looks like in their liver when they take it out. So at the time of transplant, their explant will go to pathology. It'll undergo a typical dissection. And there are certain features that put a patient at higher risk. In a properly selected patient for transplant, the risk of cancer coming back should be less than 20%, even 15 to 10% or less. But we're selecting patients based on imaging. And imaging doesn't capture everything as well as pathology. So this patient specifically had a moderately to poorly differentiated tumor, which is a higher risk factor for recurrence. But even more concerning, they had microvascular invasion, which means when the pathologist looked under the microscope, even though there was a fair amount of necrotic tumor from the prior embolization procedures, there was some evidence of tumor invading into the blood vessels. And this is a patient who we know is going to be at higher risk of recurrence versus if they did not have these features. But still, there's nothing to do for them prophylactically. There's no adjuvant treatment after transplant. Even though we know serafinib improves survival in advanced disease, there's no role in the post-resection setting or in the post-transplant setting. And so this patient was followed, which we typically do for many of our patients post-transplant every six months. In his clinical write-up, you said that he, quote, got a meld exception point. So I was curious what that is. Liver transplants are done and priority is given out based on the MELD score, which stands for the Model for End-Stage Liver Disease. And it's an objective score that's based on bilirubin, creatinine, and INR. Really, creatinine is the significant weighter in that formula. And often, I would say in the United States, depending on where you live, but typically a high MELD score is in the 30s. A normal MELD score is like 7 or 8. And what the challenge is, is we know that transplant can cure patients with early-stage liver cancer. But if a patient does not have significant liver compromise, i.e. their MELD score is low, it'll be very hard to get those patients a transplant because their MELD score is normal. So how are they going to compete with people who have serious cirrhosis, even though we can cure them with transplant? And depending on the region, there's been criteria put in place that allow patients like this who have early-stage liver cancer within Milan criteria, which is one tumor less than five centimeters or three tumors less than three centimeters. And this patient was downstage to Milan criteria because initially one of their tumors was over three centimeters. But for patients within Milan criteria and who stay within Milan criteria while waiting for transplant, their MELD score will gradually elevate. Automatically, every three months, they get extra points. And this is a moving target, how many points they get, when they get them. For example, in my region on the West Coast in California, you know, patients whose tumors are within Milan criteria, after being on the transplant list for six months, their MELD score will go up to 28. And then as long as they stay within Milan criteria, they will gradually raise their score to a score of 34. And then they're competing for transplant. They can be called, and they do get called for transplant. More and more transplants are done with the pure indication of liver cancer and not necessarily, you know, severe cirrhosis. That's really fascinating. Yeah, it's a little complicated, and it changes. Typically, how long does it take to get a transplant done? And, for example, right now, how many patients do you have waiting for a transplant? 
Personally, I have a large number of patients who I'm actively seeing and managing every few months with the interventional radiologist to keep their tumor controlled, to make sure they stay within criteria, because a certain amount of patients will fall off the list. They'll progress, they'll develop metastases or vascular invasion or too many tumors. And in some way, waiting on the list selects out those patients who have better biology. Patients who can wait for a transplant probably have a little more indolent liver cancer versus patients who get listed and in six months their tumors you know, flourish. Those patients probably wouldn't do well with transplant anyways. But currently in very busy areas, probably along the coast mostly, the waiting list is probably about a year and a half. Wow. You know, some blood types are a little shorter. Florida, where you are, probably has a little shorter waiting list. This man, unfortunately then, apparently developed a recurrence. Yes, which is unfortunate because the goal with transplant is cure. Because when we give that liver to a patient with liver cancer, there's always a chance that the cancer comes back. Versus someone who has no cancer and just has end-stage liver disease, they get a new liver and they're cured. There's no cancer variable. So that's some of the economics or the distribution of a scarce resource, which in this case is a liver. So unfortunately, this patient's liver cancer came back, and typically this is an incurable situation. With that being said, through my experience, we've had patients who develop oligometastatic recurrence that we've resected and, for whatever reason, do really well. There is some thought that the chronic immunosuppression after transplant puts a patient at increased risk of recurrence, but still the pathology in this patient is what dictated that. So when we see a patient who has recurrence, typically we like to get a biopsy to confirm recurrence. Again, post-transplant patients can get very odd diagnoses because of the immunosuppression. There have been studies looking at the use of serafinib in the post-transplant population and where in the conventional studies, it turned out 400 milligrams twice a day is the recommended dose. It looks like in the transplant population with all the medications they're on, Really, 200 milligrams twice a day is what most patients can tolerate, or 400 each day. And so in this case, this patient got started on serafinib and continued on that for several months. And as we often see with serafinib, true responses are very uncommon, you know, to see tumors shrink. But we know that even delaying progression can translate into survival benefit. In the context of this patient, you know, he stayed on serafinib until he had symptomatic disease from his metastases and, and eventually passed. I'm curious about the issue of checkpoint inhibitors and in people who've had liver transplants. Obviously, it seems like it'd be a concern. Yeah, I would not recommend using checkpoint inhibitors in this population. I mean, one of the larger experiences is in kidney transplant, where there's been publications where Patients have developed malignancies post-transplant, post-kidney transplant, and while they might have received checkpoint inhibitors for their squamous cell lung cancer or head and neck cancer that recurs, and they might have responses, the risk of graft failure was extremely high. And in the context of a kidney transplant, we have dialysis. In the context of a liver transplant, that's not an option. So we do often try to minimize the immunosuppression, but to say that giving a checkpoint inhibitor would be an appropriate intervention for these patients, regardless of maybe some small experience, I think would not be a very prudent thing to do. We've certainly seen cases that I personally have not been involved with, but that we've seen come through our center of significant graft failure. And these patients might not necessarily die right away. I mean, you can live some period of time with recurrence and to iatrogenically induce liver failure with a drug like this, I don't think is prudent. Do we know though how many patients status post-liver transplant have received checkpoint inhibitors and how many were rejected? Do we have any data? I don't think it's been looked at very carefully. You know, I think most of us in the field have shied away from that because of the concern, especially when we have other things to do now, right? And of all the exciting data about checkpoint inhibitors, they're still unproven. Can you walk us through some of the main new TKIs and checkpoint inhibitors that have come out and what the key data sets have been and where that leaves us in terms of clinical decision-making? Sure. And I think we'll break it down to frontline versus second line. So, you know, not because we haven't been trying, but it's been very hard to improve on survival that was established with serafinib. Many drugs have been looked at head-to-head 
and they've all been negative. Even studies that have looked at non-inferiority have been negative. For example, brivinib or lenifenib, multikinase inhibitors. The REFLEX study was the first positive study in frontline treatment of advanced liver cancer in more than a decade. This study looked at lenvantinib versus serafinib in over 900 patients. And lenvantinib is a VEGFR inhibitor, but differs from serafinib in that it's a very potent inhibitor of the fibroblast growth factor receptor family, FGFRs one through four. And I think that's a main differentiator from serafinib and a differentiator from many of the drugs that have been looked at in the past. And this study met its primary endpoint of being non-inferior, and it might be worth taking a second to talk about non-inferiority. In that design, you're saying that with high confidence, the endpoint, which in this case is overall survival, did not happen by accident, and that the two drugs are equivalent. And you do that by setting an upper limit to the confidence interval. And in this setting, that upper limit is 1.08. So if you get a hazard ratio that is less than 1, but the upper limit of that hazard ratio is 1.12, that does not meet non-inferiority. You can't say they're equivalent. That's a negative study. In this setting, the hazard ratio is 0.92, with the upper limit being 1.06. So we saw survival with serafinib about 12.3 months, and lenvatinib was about 13.6 months. It was not superior, they were non-inferior. Interestingly, this study differed from some of the other phase three studies in that lenvatinib is dosed by weight based on 12 milligrams versus eight milligrams based on the weight of 60 kilos. And that's less than the dose used in thyroid cancer, which is 24 milligrams. And, and that came out of earlier studies based on the metabolism of the drug in patients with liver disease. This study also limited patients who had main portal vein invasion. That's very unique in phase three studies. And this study came out of Japan where their guidelines do a different treatment for those patients with main portal vein invasion. And that's probably where we saw the survival of 12 months with serafinib. That's really the longest survival we've seen in a phase three study. And it's probably reflecting the patient's selection. Also, they excluded patients who had more than 50% of their liver involved. Is portal vein invasion just a prognostic factor, or what's the actual meaning of why were they excluded? So this is patients with main portal veins. So this means the part of the vein outside of the liver, and we know that that is a poor prognostic factor, but they were not excluded for that reason as much as the fact that patients with main portal vein invasion in Japan, per their guidelines, are treated with intraarterial chemotherapy, not with any high level of evidence, but that's where the study originated. Needless to say, lenvantinib improved progression-free survival, it improved time to progression, it improved response rates measured by both this modified resist criteria as well as conventional resist, yet the overall survival endpoint was the same. There were some imbalances in the study. For example, the number of patients in the lenvantinib arm had a higher baseline alpha-fetoprotein, which we know is a negative prognostic marker that was not stratified for. And there were more patients with the serafinib arm that had hepatitis C, which is something that has favored serafinib in other studies. Patients with hepatitis C liver cancer tend to do better with serafinib than other subtypes. And, you know, the toxicities of the two drugs differ a little bit. Lenvantinib is a very potent inhibitor of the VEGF axis. Hypertension occurs at a higher grade and more frequently than with serafinib. Both drugs cause fatigue and diarrhea, anorexia. But there was also an imbalance in the rates of hand-foot-skin syndrome. That was not as common with lenvantinib as it is with serafinib. And that could be an important differentiator for some patients. Kind of curious, if you put this, you know, you've described the clinical research data. Would you say that the global impression, because kind of this is sort of what I've been hearing from people, but I'm not sure you can tell me. Is it your global impression that the drug is somewhat more active than serafinib and maybe, from a patient point of view, less toxic? This is a very important question because it's non-inferior for the overall survival endpoint. My impression from the data is that it probably is more active. And what do we mean by that? We saw at GI ASCO a blinded independent review of over 900 patients in this study. 
And when we look at modified resist criteria, which is not only measuring the size of the tumor, but the enhancing component of the tumor, we see modified resist responses of over 40% with linvantinib versus like 12% with serafinib. What really strikes me is the resist responses. This is conventional resist tumor shrinkage. And we know that we can improve survival without shrinking tumors in liver cancer. Serafinib proved that. But we're seeing responses about 19% with linvantinib versus single digit with serafinib. So for the first time, we have a drug that's really shrinking tumors. And I'll be the first to say that response has not correlated well with overall survival. We know that in liver cancer from other drugs. But you know the fact that we're seeing this high response rate with delays in time to progression, delays in PFS, even though we have not seen an overall survival difference, my sense is the drug is more active. What does that mean in the terms of overall survival? I think a piece of data we all want to see is for patients who had a response, an objective response, what was their survival versus those who just have stable disease with linvantinib. I don't know that it's less toxic. You know, I think it's maybe a little more toxic than serafinib, but again, this is something that can be managed and it's gonna take some experience. I think there's a lot of comfort for clinicians with serafinib over the past decade. I think one of the biggest challenges with the kinase inhibitors is we know what to look for. We just don't know which patient is gonna get which toxicity. With chemotherapy, we know patients are gonna have bone marrow suppression, they're gonna get nausea, they're gonna have alopecia, but with the kinase inhibitors, it's very variable what toxicities patients get and to what degree. But I think there'll be certain patients where we favor linvantinib, maybe those patients where we do need more of an objective response versus patients who maybe will be more comfortable using serafinib. Again, from the point of view of the patient quality of life, in what situation would you view it advantageous to use serafinib as opposed to lenvatinib? So just quickly, regarding quality of life, there were quality of life assessments done in the REFLEX study, and there's really not much of a difference between the two drugs, but there are some categories that favored linvantinib, such as declining, delaying the decline in role functioning, the pain scores favored linvantinib a little bit, as well as diarrhea favored linvantinib. So, you know, as the drug rolls out globally, and certainly in the United States, I personally do not think we're done with serafinib. One thing that we know and we haven't gotten to, but there's very high level of evidence for the sequence of serafinib to regorafinib. Keep in mind, all the second-line trials that have been done have been after prior serafinib. And in the context of the resource study that looked at regorafinib after serafinib, we've seen that in that population of patients, survival is actually out to like 26 months for the patients in the resource study that go from starting serafinib to continuing regorafinib. So, you know, as far as the clinical characteristics, I think for patients who have a higher tumor burden in the liver, who, you know, I'm hoping to get a response, those are patients who I think I would favor lenvantinib over serafinib. And then there's gonna be some toxicity nuances as well. Someone who has baseline hypertension, I think going forward with lenvantinib, you know, right away, is gonna take a little more Effort. I will say, in looking at the data, that you mentioned the progression-free survival, and even though from a point of view of months, it's not that great, the hazard rate is 0.66, the way I read it, which is you know not too bad compared to serafinib. No, the challenge, and this isn't unique to liver cancer in some ways, but it's amplified, is what's the significance of doubling PFS if it doesn't improve OS? And I think this is some of the issue we're gonna be wrestling with with checkpoint inhibitors. And as we wait for the phase three data, you know, in the data sets we have with nivolumab and pembrolizumab, we see significant responses, but they're not that common, 15 to 20% at best. But if you respond, you do really well. But for the majority of patients, there's no objective response. We're not sure, are they getting a benefit if they have stable disease? If this drug is approved as first-line therapy, are you going to be using it, do you think? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I don't see it as a blanket crossover, stop using serafinib, and as I said, start using linvantinib. I think, again, there'll be some patient characteristics that I mentioned that will steer me towards one or the other. Anything else you want to say about first-line therapy developments? No, except the big study we're waiting for is the Checkmate 459 study, 
which is serafinib versus nivolumab. And that study completed accrual some time ago, and we're waiting for an event-driven analysis. And certainly, there's very high expectations for nivolumab to improve survival. But serafinib has not been beaten yet. We have non-inferiority. The one last thing I would want to say about non-inferiority and frontline is there's been several studies in the past year looking at radioembolization in patients with advanced disease or patients who progress on TACE and get Y90. So there was the Cervinib study and the Sarah study, one done in Asia, one done in Europe, that looked at radioembolization versus serafinib for these patients. And those studies were negative studies. They were powered for superiority of Y90 over serafinib. And the results in both studies was serafinib gave a survival of around 10 months, and Y90 was around eight and a half months, plus or minus. The hazard ratios and confidence intervals were not significant. Some people have interpreted that data as being equivalent, that because there was no significant difference in survival, then they were equivalent studies. But keep in mind, just like in a drug study, you have drug A versus drug B, Drug A is supposed to be better. If drug A and drug B have equivalence by numbers, but the confidence intervals are very wide, that's a negative study. Drug A will not be approved. For Y90, for some reason, it's been interpreted that these lack of significant difference means equivalence, and that's not the case. These studies were not non-inferiority studies. The patients in these studies had metastatic disease? The majority of them had, like, vascular invasion, you know, they became Barcelona C because they had vascular invasion or symptomatic disease. Some of them were still intermediate, but they progressed on TACE. There was some patients who even had extrahepatic disease. You know, there was also a study of serafinib versus serafinib and Y90, even for patients with clear advanced disease, with the idea of this debulking in the liver with Y90. And that was a negative study as well. So how about new developments in the second line? For a long time, second line was the large unmet need in liver cancer. We did have serafinib. We wanted to improve on that. But we didn't have much to do when patients progressed on serafinib. There was nothing that was proven to improve survival. And again, we went through a series of negative phase three studies until the resource study with regorafenib. And regorafenib, I think people are probably familiar with. It's not too dissimilar from serafinib. You know, it's a potent VEGFR inhibitor also hits TI2 and RET. And, you know, we designed this study a little late in the course of the other phase three studies, and we learned a little bit about second-line liver cancer, what to expect for survival, what some of the important prognostic factors are second-line. And this study took patients who had confirmed radiographic progression on serafinib. So it didn't take patients who were serafinib intolerant. And it was always a problem for a drug that doesn't induce responses like serafinib what is progression? It improves survival by delaying progression. So we used resist criteria for progression, you know, more than 20% increase from baseline or new lesions. And patients had to tolerate a minimum dose of serafinib to come on study. And again, what surprised a lot of people is because regorafinib is used in colon cancer in late line, and the sense is that this is a toxic drug in that population, there was some concern about how well it would be tolerated in the liver cancer population. But in reality, it was tolerated quite well. About half the patients tolerated the full dose, which was 160 milligrams, three weeks on, one week off. And this was a blinded study that showed that with documented progression on serafinib, continuing to regorafinib improved survival. And the hazard ratio here was 0.63. Survival went from about, I think, seven and a half months to just over 10 months. And this was the first phase three study in liver cancer in second line or any indication and led to the global approval of regorafenib. Recently, and I alluded to this before, we looked at survival of patients and some other outcomes for patients in this study. So for patients who started serafinib, progressed, and then went on to the resource study, survival in the treatment arms was 26 months versus 19 months in the control arm. And, you know, that is an interesting data set. That number of 26 months overall survival for Barcelona C disease is not a number we've seen before. And I think suggests how we're starting to change the natural history of liver cancer with the introduction of active agents. The other thing that was looked at is toxicity based on prior dose of serafinib. So 
whether you were on full dose of serafinib or less than full dose, the toxicities with regorafenib were very comparable. Is this your standard second-line therapy after serafinib at this point? At this time, yes. I mean, other than a clinical trial, we do also have approved in the United States nivolumab, second line. Nivolumab was approved on the Checkmate 040 study, which was a single arm phase one and then expansion cohort of over 100 patients who had progressed on serafinib. And this drug was approved because the response rate was about 15%, but if you responded, the duration of response was about 16 months, a very long period of time. We are waiting for randomized data in the frontline setting to tell us if in the broader population this does improve survival. But certainly in my management of patients, I try to get patients both drugs at this point. And what we need to start doing, again, is not only getting patients appropriately earlier in the line of frontline, but now that we have second-line agents and multiple options, we can't just wait until a patient becomes symptomatic on frontline. There used to be a time if we didn't have things to offer patient a progression on serafinib, we would just continue serafinib until clinical progression. You know, they get decompensated, they have pain. I think at this time, we need to actively manage patients a little closer, image them regularly, and when they have radiographic progression, then triage them to either nivolumab or regorafenib, or as we'll see in the near future, cabozantinib and ramucirumab. So I want to ask you about those latter two, but first of all, how do you decide right now between regorafenib and nivolumab as second-line therapy after serafinib? Yes, that's an excellent question. You know, part of it is my assessment of will this patient be able to get two different drugs? I think the idea that, and I've seen this, we have seen patients cured with nivolumab. It's remarkable. You have very sick patients, they're symptomatic, and they have rapid responses with nivolumab. In many ways, I feel patients should have an opportunity for that benefit. It might not be scientific. We don't have high-grade, high-level evidence, phase three data, but we know it happens. You can't argue that. And, you know, it depends when I see my patient, if they're going to be a candidate for only one second-line treatment, I might give them the option of nivolumab in that setting with the understanding that the other drugs have been shown to improve survival but the hope is that you have a dramatic response to Nevo. First is the patient who's been on serafinib and has slowly progressive disease. That's a patient I would probably try rigorafenib first and then at progression, give them a chance at nivolumab. Globally, when a patient asks you, what do you estimate to be the chance of prolonged response and benefit with checkpoint inhibition, nivolumab? In second line, I say about 15% of patients have a very significant response. Now, what does that mean for the other 85%? We know with the TKIs, stable disease improves survival. We don't know that for sure in the context of HCC with the checkpoint inhibitors because there's been no randomized data. Could you talk a little bit more about the data on nivolumab in HCC in terms of what's been observed? and also in terms of predictors of benefits such as tumor mutation burden. So, you know, the things that have been of interest in the checkpoint area in other malignancies such as tumor mutation burden or PD-L1 expression have not correlated so well with benefit. And we now have two phase two studies, one with nivolumab and one with pembrolizumab, which are very similar in their response rates and activity. There was a little higher trend of benefit as measured by response in the PEMBRO data set looking at a combined PD-L1 score versus just the tumor PD-1 score. That is measuring not only PD-L1 expression in the tumor cells, but also the stromal cells. But at this time, those play no role in liver cancer. There has been a global approval of checkpoint inhibitors across histologies based on tumors that have mismatch. DNA mismatch defects, but those are very uncommon in the context of liver cancer. So we don't have a good biomarker right now. What's been seen in terms of treatment benefit with checkpoint inhibitors based on the etiology, underlying etiology in terms of liver disease, viral infection, NASH, et cetera? Yeah, so again, both the pembrolizumab and the nivolumab datasets have looked at that question, and it seems to be irrespective of etiology. And we know that liver cancer often arises in this inflammatory milieu. And we know the liver itself is an organ that 
has a lot of immune tolerance, but we have not been able to correlate outcome with any of those clinical etiologies of liver cancer. What about the combination of anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1? Has that been looked at or will that be looked at? That has been looked at with dervalumumab and tremilumumab. There was a relatively small study presented at ASCO 2017, and it showed response rates with the combination of around 17%. And that is not that much dissimilar from what we've seen with single-agent PD-L1 inhibition. So it's not clear what the synergy is between those two molecules, but needless to say, there is the Himalaya study, which is a large phase three study of Derva versus Derva and Tremi versus Serafinib that's moved forward and that study's actively accruing. I think it's important we probably touch about toxicity as well. You know, the common toxicities with PD-1 we tend to see in the liver cancer population as well. However, keep in mind, our liver cancer population is cirrhotic and we need to be sensitive to that. And that if we do start seeing some of the toxicities that we see in a healthier population, a melanoma population who doesn't have underlying organ dysfunction, the patient with liver cancer might not tolerate that as well. And so to date, all the studies have concentrated on this child PUA good performance status population. With that being said, from the published data, the toxicity seems to be very reasonable. There are, like in the nivolumab label, there are specific guidelines for the management of AST and ALT and bilirubin elevations in the context of liver cancer, because a lot of these patients start with elevated AST and ALT. And they start treatment, and, and sometimes their AST and ALT will just fluctuate, versus is that really autoimmune hepatitis starting to form? So I, I urge everybody to look closely at the FDA label, which gives guidance on how to manage that. I mean, I guess we've seen, I don't know exactly what the incident is, is maybe 10% in terms of, you know, hepatic toxicity with checkpoint inhibitors and other tumors. I don't know in your own mind whether you have a number for what the likelihood is that a checkpoint inhibitor is going to cause hepatic damage on top of whatever they already have. Yeah, I think in the studies, there have not really been cases of hepatic failure. And in the studies, the need for steroids for AST and ALT alterations is very uncommon. But I think as you know, these drugs go into the general population, my sense is we will probably see more of these events. And it's just going to take a high level of awareness to watch for these. You know, now nivolumab is dosed once a month. So I think you can't just take a liver cancer patient, give them a dose, and say, I'll see you in a month. You probably still need to see them sooner at least in follow-up, check their liver enzymes, and clinically how they're doing. So we're seeing lots of interesting combinations with checkpoint inhibitors and lung cancer, in particular now, you know, chemo plus checkpoint inhibitors, but also TKIs. You see that in renal cancer being looked at. And I see at ASCO, you were involved with, I think it was a phase one study, looking at lenvatinib and pembrolizumab. That's a fascinating combination. What do we know about the combinations of TKIs and checkpoint inhibitors, and what did you see? This is an evolving space very quickly now, especially with the idea that, you know, lenvantinib is non-inferior in front line, and the PD-1 inhibitors look very active in second line. And so this study was looking at the combination, and as you mentioned, in kidney cancer, this combination looks active. And this was a relatively small study about 30 patients at the time of the presentation. But very intriguingly, the modified resist response rate was over 40%. That was unconfirmed. But again, a very interesting degree of activity, greater than we would expect necessarily with either drug alone. And so this study is expanding. The side effect profile seemed to be manageable. In this small experience, there were a few more deaths than we would have expected. But again, it's a very small experience and we look forward to seeing a larger data set with this combination. There was the other study of bevacizumab and atezolizumab presented, and actually this got a breakthrough therapy designation from the FDA. And this study looking at antiangiogenic inhibition with VEGF in combination with the pdl one inhibitor atezolizumab, there were response rates of 60%, and this was confirmed in a blinded independent review. So this is remarkable. Both these studies showing very high double-digit response rates 
in a disease where we've never had response rates historically. We've had a drug that improves survival without inducing response. So this is, I think, the beginning of a new generation of studies, and the combination of Atezo and Bevacizumab is now in a phase three study versus serafinib. Any thoughts about the biology of why an anti-angiogenic and a checkpoint inhibitor would in any way be synergistic, whether it's Bev or a TKI? I mean, I've heard it said, some people think that somehow some of the mechanism of action of BEV is immunologic. But from your point of view, why would these two classes of drugs work better together? Yeah, I think it is an important question to ask because we've been dealing with BEV for the past 15 plus years. It's a monoclonal antibody. It only interacts with the VEGF. But I think our understanding of VEGF's effects on the vasculature and the vasculature's important role in interacting with the immune system is more than just supplying you know, blood to a tumor. That the vasculature does play a role in allowing immune cells to infiltrate the tumor and activating immune cells and antigen-presenting cells. You know, I think the challenge in finding predictive markers with the PD-1, PD-L1 checkpoint drugs is that the immune system is very complex and we really don't understand it. And at the end of the day, there's probably a little hand-waving. Similarly with the multi-kinase inhibitors. These are drugs that do a lot of things. One of them is hit the VEGF receptor, but you know their effect on the immune system might be something that we don't truly appreciate as much because we're concentrating on the tumor so much. I'm kind of curious right now in your own mind, putting cost aside, reimbursement issues, if you could just use the drugs that are out there right now, what would be in general would be your optimal first-line systemic therapy of HCC? And obviously, I'm kind of trying to be provocative and ask you whether or not really right now, even before the phase three studies out there, that a checkpoint inhibitor kind of looks better to me than a risorafenib or lenvatinib. Well, like in the frontline, single agent checkpoint inhibitors from what we saw had a response rate of 20%. And survival, which has been presented, which was very immature, was like well over 20 months. No one expects that, I think, in a phase three study. You know, again, I try to practice evidence-based medicine, and I think to that extent, it's either lenvantinib or serafinib. If, you know, God forbid I had to deal with this diagnosis, to be honest, I would want a checkpoint inhibitor sometime during my course. Not necessarily frontline, but I would certainly try to get on one of the frontline studies where I have a chance of getting a PD-1 inhibitor either with BEV or with lenvantinib, one of those studies we saw at ASCO. That would be my motivation. Now, what if I had access to that outside of a study? You know, I think probably I would try to pursue that. Yeah, this has come up so many times on so many different tumors. It's such a vexing question. Why don't we finish out? You mentioned cabozantinib and ramucirumab. Can you kind of go through what we know about those agents? So adding to our bulk of high-level evidence are the results of Celestial study and the REACH-2 study, which we saw this past year. Cabozantinib is an interesting molecule approved in kidney cancer that, again, like all the other TKIs in the space, hit the VEGF receptor, but also hit CMET and Axel. CMET is an interesting target in liver cancer. It's the hepatocyte growth factor receptor. It, by its name, you know, it plays a role in the development of the liver and has been implicated in liver cancer. CMET overexpression has been pursued with other drugs. We saw some data that suggested that high CMET expression is a bad prognostic sign in liver cancer. And the phase three study with Tevantinib actually evaluated that drug only in patients with high CMET expression. And we saw last year at ASCO that that was a negative study. So the celestial study did not use any biomarker for selection. And it took patients who had progressed on serafinib or were intolerant the majority of them overwhelmingly progressed. It also had a third-line population. About 25% of the patients were third-line liver cancer patients. And this study was another positive study. You know, survival went from, I think, around 7 months to 10 months. That was a hazard ratio of about 0.74, 0.75. And, you know, that drug will likely get approved in this indication that the side effect profile was very typical for this class, you know, hand, foot, skin syndrome, some diarrhea, mild hypertension, nothing really unexpected. When they looked at the 75% of patients who only were first line, we saw the hazard ratio drop to 0.7. 
which is not too different from the regorafenib data of 0.63 as far as magnitude of benefit. So this will be another option. Why this study was positive when other molecules that hit the VEGF axis were not, it's a little hard to say, other than it is a different molecule given its CMET activity and axle activity. The data with ramucirumab is very intriguing, I think. This is the first biomarker-driven positive study in liver cancer. Ramucirumab, you'll remember, is a monoclonal antibody to the VEGF receptor that's approved in lung cancer and gastric cancer. And many years ago, there was a large randomized phase three study done of ramucirumab versus placebo. That was called the REACH-1 study. That was a negative study. There was no benefit to the use of ramucirumab in second-line patients. Interestingly, though, when they looked retrospectively, they saw that patients who had an elevated alpha-fetoprotein at baseline had two unique features. If you had a high AFP, your survival was about four months, four and a half months with high AFP, versus a low AFP, your survival was about 11 months. So in that low AFP group, there was no benefit to the addition of ramucirumab. However, in the patients who had the high AFP, greater than 400, survival was significantly improved from about four months to close to eight months. So with that in mind, repeat prospective phase three study was designed, the REACH-2, which accrued patients who only had an elevated AFP at entry. And this study was reported at ASCO, and this study showed still there was a benefit to ramucirumab, but the big surprise here is the control group. The control group actually did around seven months survival as compared to four months in the initial study. And that increased to over eight months. The absolute benefit there was like 1.2 months with a hazard ratio of about 0.73 or so. So it did meet its endpoint. There was a 27% decrease in the risk of death, but the control arm did better than expected. And that's something we're trying to figure out. In a combined analysis of the high AFP group from REACH1 with the patients in REACH2, you know, we see a greater absolute difference because the control arm in the composite group is around five months. But needless to say, you know, the drug is fairly well tolerated. It's an infusion. It causes mostly VEGF-mediated toxicities, hypertension. There's been some edema, fluid retention. There is some increase in proteinuria has been described with the drug. And in this population, we saw some increase in the amount of ascites as well. Could you take all these agents and data sets and weave them into a systemic therapy algorithm? Theoretically, let's put aside again FDA. Let's just talk about where the data points us. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of branch points in that algorithm. You know, we've seen in kidney cancer. Kidney cancer, I think, is going to become a paradigm for us because in kidney cancer, we've seen the sequential use of TKIs still have activity. We will not have sequencing data, high-level evidence in liver cancer for a long time if it ever comes. And I think at the end of the day, you know, how will we maximize exposure for patients to all these active drugs? Historically, we have not seen patients that get to second line, or we even started our discussion today, how many oncologists are frustrated that they don't see patients front line. They're already too sick. So I think in the future, now that we have several drugs that are available that have shown to improve survival, we will get patients hopefully earlier in their disease course and you know triage them through sequential TKIs whether that means starting with lenvantinib, then serafinib, then regorafenib, you know, and could we even go beyond third or fourth line? Or starting with lenvantinib and at progression going to CABO. Again, we don't have a lot of data to guide us as far as the sequence. And I think for patients who have high AFP, obviously ramucirumab will be an option for those patients. And that's going to be, you know, maybe up to half the population. You know, it's interesting. I wonder if you see a benefit from checkpoint inhibition as first line, what's going to be second and third? Is it just going to be what's first and second now or what? Yeah, I've thought about that. And I think we'll be talking about, you know, frontline liver cancer, potentially checkpoint inhibitors. And then we'll talk about frontline TKIs. And maybe that's how we'll think about it rather than frontline second line. 
It'll be frontline IO, and then at progression, we will have frontline TKI data, and then second line TKI, and think about it that way. And then obviously ramiseramab in there. I think an important thing that we'll learn from the phase three studies with Checkpoint is what's the significance of stable disease with Checkpoint. Often those dramatic responses we see occur within three months. So for the patient who isn't having one of those responses, whether in second line now or in the future in front line, do we continue them on Checkpoint? Or if they're stable, maybe that's when we should transition them to the TKIs. I just don't know what stable disease means yet with the IO agents. I have to ask you also, I saw that there was an abstract you had out of the drug Tislelazumab, anti-PD-1 antibody. I haven't heard of it. It's PD-1? Yeah, it's a PD-1 inhibitor. And as you know, there are just a lot of PD-1 inhibitors out there. And this is a study that's building on the early phase checkpoint inhibitor data with nivolumab and pembrolizumab. And, you know, it's a global study in hopes to show that this drug improves survival over serafinib. Obviously, it's behind, you know, some of the other inhibitors, but the hope is that they will be able to complete the study before the others gain regulatory approval, just to have another option. I think it's a very exciting time in liver cancer. I think given that we have high-level evidence evolving, we need to try to work closely with our colleagues in the community, meaning hepatology, GI, interventional radiology, to help them understand that liver cancer is not the diagnosis it was 10 years ago, that we have several options available to improve survival. And it's important to get oncology involved early on in the course and to help manage those patients. Because again, there's no point in doing phase three studies and generating data if we don't get to implement it. One final thing I want to ask you about, I see that one of your cases was a 70-year-old man who was treated with a checkpoint inhibitor and it was kind of an interesting course. I wonder if you could comment on this patient. Yeah, and this is the real dramatic responses we see that have just amazed us with this class of drug. You know, this was a guy who had hepatitis B-related liver disease, actually was found to have a tumor several years ago that was resected with curative intent. You know, he was well compensated, tolerated that well. He was being followed regularly, was noted to have a rising AFP and Re-imaging showed that he had developed recurrence in the liver and the lung that was biopsy-proven as liver cancer. And he started on serafinib and, you know, did not tolerate it so well, had some dose reductions, and came off after about four months. And then was transitioned to regorafenib, I think, in this case, and, you know, got some degree of benefit from that, but continued to have progressive disease and was very symptomatic. This guy, you know, went from playing tennis to not being able to walk very far. And arguably, you could have said, you know, maybe this is a time for supportive care. But this is a gentleman who, you know, we made the decision about trying nivolumab. And within weeks, his AFP dropped dramatically. Symptomatically, he got better. And he had a major response. And he stayed on drug over the course of about a year when he developed some more dyspnea, did not have disease progression. He has very minimal disease on radiograph, a near CR in both the liver and the lung. But he developed maybe some pneumonitis, felt to be maybe from nivolumab, and was treated with steroids and inhalers. And he's been off drug now for well over a year. And his disease has not recurred. AFP remains low, you know, and for all intensive purposes, appears to be cured of his liver cancer, even though radiographically there might be some small findings. So again, this is what is very intriguing to us and what you know, pulls us to use this group of drugs even though we don't have phase three data. I think something that'll be very interesting is you know, what if the phase three studies aren't positive? I think the nivolumab versus serafinib study does have some risk, even though we know with these drugs there's a dramatic tail of the curve. That's where we see a big difference. The question is what will we see at the median the second line study, which is a phase three study of Pembro versus placebo, obviously is a lower hurdle for being positive given it's against placebo. But there's a lot of crossover in these studies. It'll be a very exciting next several months as we hope to see results from these studies. 
Well, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in terms of this issue, in terms of the types of trials and endpoints that should be done. I look at some of these trials and they kind of seem, you know, even when they started out in lung, it just seemed kind of weird in a way because, and there've been papers written about this. It seemed like what you're really interested in is not the overall survival of the whole group, but the number of patients who are alive without progression, you know, a year and a half, two years later, like your patient. And you would imagine, I mean, tell me how many people you've seen like that getting a TKI. So if you see that 10% versus 1%, to me, that would be positive. But I don't think that's the way the trials are set up. No, they're not. And I don't think regulators look at it that way either. Ultimately, they will decide how things are approved. You know, and I think we're going to have to start thinking differently about liver cancer now that we have so many treatments it might be hard to see overall survival advantage in front line. You know, we might start using something like PFS as a surrogate endpoint in phase three studies because we do have so many options and, you know, you can't control what happens subsequently after frontline treatment. You know, that's been the problem, you know, in other diseases like ear positive breast cancer, for example.